This is Strange Assembly episode 297, Kaldheim. I'm Chris Stevenson, and here with me today is Mike Cook. Hello! And this is Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. We are here today to talk about Kaldheim, the latest expansion for Magic the Gathering. I imagine, Mike, you've uh, been firing away on Arena. I have done half a draft, yes. (laughs) All right, so let me give the usual proviso. Mike can say whatever he wants to say or not, but do not look to me for tournament advice. My primary Magic the Gathering opponent is a (laughs) 10-year-old. It's a 10-year-old and now Magic Arena people. I mean, it used to be a little bit broader than that, but I mean, it's because it's my kid is my primary opponent. So my Magic assessment includes things like, you know, I like this creature type or what's the good arts or so not. We're going to say things that relate to function, but don't take anything I say as any real tournament advice. That's that's my uh, universal warning label these days. Mine is entirely Magic Arena opponents and what content creators say on Twitter and on their streams. So <laughs> mine is not necessarily much earned advice myself. Yeah, well, I mean, who who has anything other than Magic Arena opponents these days? I, I don't know. Right. So Kaldheim is the Viking set, or the Norse set, I guess. Norse mythology really is more accurate than Viking set. I'm just going to go ahead and preemptively say, maybe Mike has something he wants to say on this topic, but they've been advertising this as the most metal magic set ever, and I think that falls entirely in the category of marketing claptrap, and I'm not going to address it any further, but did you have anything you wanted to say about how metal Kaldheim is, Mike? I thought it was pretty neat that they got metal bands to preview some cards. And I know there's a little bit of controversy around that just because you want to reward people who are making content or whatever. But if you want the game to grow, you need it to get in front of people who may not see it or not. And so that's pretty good marketing for people who might like metal and maybe remember magic. So I think it's fine as a marketing gimmick. They actually lost me more at the calling it a Viking set when it's really more about Norse mythology. Because I'm here from the Norse mythology, and much like pirates and ninjas just as concepts that people like are generally popular in pop culture, I don't really like those concepts, but I do like a lot of the culture around them. So once I realized this is more, more Norse mythology and how deeply they dove into it, I was, I was much more on board than when they initially said, it's Vikings! Yeah, I mean, the, the things that seem more important in the set are like the gods and the magicized versions of the big serpent that's going to destroy the world and the big wolf that's going to destroy the world. And man, there's a lot about things getting wrecked in Norse mythology, right? I mean... Also, the, the fact that there's a lot of transformation, there's a lot of kind of cycling. The gods all die. None of them are indestructible. These are all actual, like, ideas in Norse mythology. So it's kind of cool to see that in some way identified, whereas like the Greek gods in Theros, Greek-inspired gods in Theros, all are like indestructible, but only come out if you're showing them enough devotion. These gods can die, but they also change form. So not not that the Greek ones don't, but still, I, I thought that was a pretty nice touch. From a mechanical perspective, too, it's their whole deal about it's the first time that there's modal double-faced cards that aren't a land on one of the sides and this is the first time since they really made i think since they made doing gods a thing 
that the gods are not indestructible because the oh oh god I'm about to say Kaladesh and that is wrong the Amonkhet gods were indestructible too <laughs> right well yes the Amonkhet ones were the ones that were reborn were not but came back into your deck even if you tried to exile them yeah the Eternals yeah they weren't literally indestructible but they had a mechanic that was flavored in a form of indestructible to represent the the way of them coming back yeah because they were the zombie gods so let's see we always we always hit on the the variants i guess since while we're in the marketing packaging land so we have the usual there's a showcase frame for this they have borderless alternate arts and they've continued to expand that beyond the planeswalkers there are the planeswalkers there's the pathways of course the four of them that are left and then there's another card for every color that has a borderless alternate art including one of the few times you've got cards that are getting both of those treatments that has not been done a ton i think it's still noteworthy especially tybalt getting uh the double dip treatment Mm -hmm. Uh, because spoiler alert one of the quote-unquote gods is tybalt in disguise (laughs) <laughs> which feels pretty appropriate that feels kind of right it's the trickster playing the trickster god i'm like well yeah okay that works yeah so he has one of the showcase arts which are for the like legendary creatures uh is what most of those are and then he also has a borderless version and so you get both sides with the alternate art too then i think the only other sort of different dish packaging presentation thing that's coming to mind for Kaldheim is that there are more cards that are only in the theme decks. Well, kind of. There's also snow, although that's not a second version. It's just they made a new border for it. Yeah, all the snow permanents have the little snowy thing. I think it looks snowy, right? And some of the snow yeah. cards are yeah. seem pretty good, too. Yeah. I don't know if Standard ends up with a snow deck, especially if it's only the one set to draw from. But, you know, hopefully in a format I don't plan, right? Like, there's, I hear, an older format that already has snow decks in it. I mean, they're tapped, but they made snow duels that actually have the land types. Just any time they reprint, they reprinted Snowlands in a non-premium set, right? Like, it's a booster draft set. So anytime they do that, I think it's just good. Just to make it so if you do want to run Snowlands for whatever reason, it's not horribly expensive. And the art in this inset in, in its entirety is very good, and the Snowlands especially are very good. Yeah, they look nice. And the I think right each pack, right, has one Snowland in it for the land. Snowland or dual. It's a Snowland, either a basic or one of the snow dual lands, right? Correct. Yeah, because I know the aforementioned 10-year-old has a mono-blue commander deck that has one card in it that wants snow permanence. It's the Merit Lage. <laughs> it's like Merit Lage's Slumber or whatever. I'm like, I don't right. have 40 snow. <laughs> like, he's like, every time he gets the deck, every time he gets the deck out, he's like, remember, they're all snow islands. And like, on the off chance, he draws the one card that needs them. <laughs> Right, right. So, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think that's a lot of the case, but it's, it feels popular enough that hopefully between it and Modern Horizons, who, which also had Snowlands, and it seems like that snow is not going to be far off from another set, I would imagine. Hopefully, they'll keep in circulation and will keep the prices down, because if anything, basic lands should not be very expensive. And they do seem to have solid cards if you're really going for that all in on snow stuff like 
direct damage that if you tapped three Snowlands to cast it, gives you all the mana back. I mean, it's colorless yeah. now, but it's not a free spell, as in the old school meaning of the word, but not bad. Frost Augur can be some pretty cheap, consistent card draw. If you've got the loaded up with Snowlands, you've got things that are basically Wrath of God and then bring back your up to six mana creature immediately thereafter. Yeah, Blood on the Snow. Yeah, Blood on the Snow. The God of Winter does nifty things, and you can kind of see for from Yorn, God of Winter, what the color scheme is for snow, right? It's the, the blue, black, green are your three biggest snow colors, but everything has snow. I think the other sort of snow lord card is Narfi the Betrayer King, who's uh, blue, black, and can just keep on bringing himself back. Yeah. But gives all your snow creatures plus one, plus one. Historically, especially like as far as draft archetypes, very frequently you'll see snow be five color because you, if you're drafting, you're going to have to grab the snow lands, which means you sometimes don't have choice what color basics you're grabbing. One of the things that goes back to those extra cards that are in the theme decks, although it's, I don't know, it's still kind of odd to me. Maybe you have thoughts. I have not really thought about why they're in the themes decks, but in addition to the five rares that are in the theme decks, one of each color, which they've been doing for a few sets now, there are, I think, 15 uncommons that are only in the theme decks. You mean theme boosters? Yes, the theme boosters. They're all tribal cards. Yeah. And so tribal is a big thing in the set, but yeah, there's angels cards and dwarf cards and giant cards and shapeshifter cards and elf cards and berserker cards. And maybe the idea is just, yeah, well, duh, we want you to go actually buy these theme boosters. But this is very much a tribal set too, which is why it has shapeshifters and the return of the changeling keyword, or at least part of why it has that, so that you can support that kind of stuff in limited. Although there are cards that mechanically matter for a, a bunch of different tribes, but there aren't just loads and loads and loads of them. What you have more of is cards that like make you choose a creature type and then benefit that. So it's not specifically it's an elf card, but you can use it in your elf deck or your what else are your oh lord, what else does green have? Because they're all all of the creature types are these they're doing the whole two color theme, like berserkers are in black and red, and then giants are in red and blue, and then wizards are in this, and you know, zombies are in blue and black, elves are in black and green. It's uh, Every two-color pair has its own creature type, and then there's a little bit of overlap. Yep. I think green-white is warrior as well. Yes, that makes sense. Yeah. Right, well, you've got the Battle for Bredegard, right, which is your signpost. Well, actually, it's not a signpost. It's a gold card. But it makes a warrior, and it makes an, a human warrior that makes an elf warrior. And Battle for Bredegard is a saga. So this is obviously not at all the first time they've had sagas, but I think this is the first time they've had multicolor sagas, which I guess, matter, I, I don't know, that's a first. It doesn't really feel like an important first, but hey, it's multicolor sagas. <laughs> I like the thing on the sides where it has the numbers listed. I, I like the dual color banners that are behind the colors. That's not really anything important. I just think it's kind of a cool co uh, design choice. I just mostly like the sagas. Yeah, I like trying to figure out the story that they're telling with the sagas. I still like the Dominaria sagas the best because it's like magic history that I actively... No, but some of these you can kind of tell what they are just from three. You know, it's the 
hero defeats the monster and it's like okay yeah bigger bigger fight okay gotcha i <laughs> right you know i that was pretty straightforward i thought the last arrows set their sagas were pretty good like they're pretty clear what's happening and they they actually were relevant to the things that were happening in the story not that we got a whole lot of other support because of the things that went on with the story team but these are kind of nice because it's history we don't know so it kind of establishes that they seem like a pretty good way to do that yeah it tells you a little bit more about the legendaries because i i mean i get it commander and all that but if (sighs) you gotta if you're gonna have legendaries try to give me some kind of context to who this person was like legendaries on the whole, I feel like used to be more interesting on average because they were more distinctive and it was more likely that you know who they are. Now you're more likely to get a legendary where like, who the what? So I like anything where they fill in more around the world building and the legendaries and the sagas let them tell little stories. It, it's not that they can't do that through flavor text and other things, but it gives them another right. tool. Have you, have you been reading any of the stories, the web fictions? I have read some of them. It seems like something I should do, but I just never make myself go and do it. I feel like since I haven't started doing it, I haven't kept up doing it. They started that with, with Zendikar, unless unless I'm misrecalling where they Correct. like went back to free web fictions instead of either novels that were released months later or no offense to whoever wrote, but like the when they, they did some of them where they had like the E novellas. Mm-hmm. I so much prefer a physical book if you're going to give me a book that I have to pay for. Right. I just like holding a book in my hand. And I get that obviously I don't have that when I'm reading a short fiction online, but that's also only a short fiction at a time and it's free. So it turns out I have different standards for free things than things I have to pay for. Right. And they can always publish it. They can always, you know, just put them together and like publish it as like a magazine or something. They could, and I know it's a little weird, but if they, some of these things, Magic, or if like L5R had ever gone and done this or something, I would actually buy if these things were bundled together. I regularly buy Magic books. I don't have the latest one yet, which is War of the Spark, but other than that, I have all of the art of Magic the Gathering books, and there's another little series of books that are basically like card galleries with a little bit of writing. It's like, here are the planes, and here are the legends, and here are some planeswalkers, and I wish those ones were bigger. They're like, they're not quite pocket-sized, but they're not much right. different than like a, they're much they're hardbacks, but they're much, not much different in size from like a, a mass-market paperback, and right. I'll pay the twice as much, which is what I pay for the Art of Magic books. Just, come on. Juice it up, juice up the size. It's an art <laughs> book, folks. Uh, <laughs> uh, have you have you done any of the Arcanite books, or did you do any of the novellas for L five R? I'm just curious. I know it's not magic, but I own and have read all of the Legend of the Five Rings novellas. I'm interested in the Arkham Horror ones, but I'll I'll be frank. Part of the price of those books is like promo cards for the game. Yeah. I'm not in the game, and I'm I'm into L five R enough to be willing to spend like the thirteen dollars for a novella. Do you mean, oh, sorry, do you mean novellas or the Arcanite books? Well, you said Arcanite and novella. Those would be different things. So Fantasy Flight was publishing novellas. Right. And Arcanite, which is the fiction publishing arm of Asmodee, is now publishing novels based on the various properties, including Legend of the Five Rings. Uh, I've read several of those. 
In fact, if you go to strangeassembly.com, you can read reviews of several of those because <laughs> I get you review get copies yeah. of them. Yeah, so Poison River was the first Legend of the Five. I'm sorry, was the second Legend of the Five Rings ones. It was the best out of the two that I've read. There was a formatting problem where I was unable to actually download the third one, the third um, Legend of the Five Rings novels, the novel, so I have not read that one. I've also reviewed a couple of the Arkham Horror Files ones. I haven't jumped to the other ones. I don't know what I'd say, like about a, a Keyforge novel. I don't know anything about Keyforge. Right. Usually this sort of genre fiction stuff is not great if you're not familiar with it. That's like, you know, having some familiarity is, is a benefit. Although, if you're listening to this magic-focused episode and like wondering what the heck we're talking about that's not magic, or at least even if you know what we're talking about, you're wondering why on earth we're talking about it. Apologies. But but I will say that those books are... You can't get away from the fact that like you get a bit more out of things if you know what the history is and right. you like know the setting and the background. But those books are definitely written to be accessible to people who don't know the setting. Like, Poison River is not my favorite Legend of the Five Rings novel. For me, the, like, hardcore L5R grognard type who knows all sorts of lore going back 25 years, my favorite novels for those are always going to be something back from, like, the Clan War saga, right? But Mm -hmm. if someone was new to L5R and just wanted to read an L5R book, Poison River is what I would point them at. Right. I just have been thinking about that because, frankly, I'm kind of surprised that they haven't spent more time with magic in trying to get it accessible in other ways. It's still, I think, the biggest card game. I don't know if Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh have taken it over. I don't think they have. But Yu-Gi-Oh and Pokemon both have like wildly successful cartoons or, or, or some kind of show, right? And it just struck me the other day that magic has never had that. It's had a couple of commercials, and that's about as far as it's gone. For for what it's worth, there's a Netflix show coming up in the works. Yes, there is. I'm very excited for it. They've got good people behind it, or you know, people who could produce something good. Who knows what actually is going to happen? Right? There's a million things in production. I'm just surprised. Right? It's 2021. This game's been out for almost 30 years now. Like in a couple of years, it'll be 30 years. And like this is the first time we're really getting like a big thing. Maybe it's just something where it's constantly falling apart. And for a long time, they didn't care as much about like an actual story, right? Like things kind of happened, but people more pieced it together. I'm just kind of surprised it it hasn't really happened before. Anyway, sorry, I guess that was a long diatribe. I've just been thinking about it because uh, how the web fiction has been changing and whatnot, uh, how the fiction story they've been telling you has changed. There's been a lot of focus on, um, I don't know, accessories, like accessorizing outside of just actual game paraphernalia. And they're owned by Hasbro, who is certainly no stranger to synergizing media with product sales. Yeah, they they might be uh, one of the top experts on that. (laughs) (laughs) But Kaldheim, there's a few new mechanics in Kaldheim. There's Fortel, a.k.a. Morph for Spells. It plays quite a bit differently, though, right? Because you don't have a body on the field, so they can't, like, blow it up. But it's also really good because it's it's like a guessing game, and it gives you a way to spend two mana that's not that you don't have to worry about your colors. So it, it helps smooth out the fixing as well. And it'd probably be too good if you could do it on your opponent's turn. The fact you can only do it foretell on your own turn it really 
I think makes that mechanic sing. It's definitely been the one I've enjoyed the most so far. Yeah, I mean, if if you could be like EOT Fortel, my turn, Kaz. I, <laughs> yeah. I walked into a yeah like the turn three Doom Scar, and I'm like, God dang. Well, if it's on a draft, you can't you can't really think they're going to have it most of the time, right? You just kind of have to play like they don't because it's a rare. I like Fortel. It <laughs> it gives them. The funny thing is that after having come up with the mechanic of Fortel and decided that like it's workable. It must have made it kind of easy to make a big chunk of cards because there end up just being a lot of cards in the set that are it's X, but with Fortel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you'd kind of want to make those staples with Fortel too, right? And they make some interesting things. Sure. And I mean, that's the thing that happens with every new mechanic, right? It's giant growth with set mm-hmm. mechanic. It's lightning. It's well, not lightning bolt. It's shock, but with set mechanic. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because the set mechanics can actually drastically change how they feel or play. Or maybe drastically, but significant. Yeah, I do have to say, flavor-wise, I I think my favorite uh, Fortel card is Saw It Coming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just works on a lot of levels. I apparently enjoy the uh, mouthy things that they sometimes use for counterspells. Like, uh, I enjoy the heck out of Didn't Say Please. I'm like, that's... That's 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 a good name for a counterspell. That is a good card yep. title. Yeah, they've gotten some really good sassy ones in the past few sets. Yeah, saw it coming for the Fortel counterspell, definitely in that. And along the lines of being sassy, you've also got Boast. This is the, a mechanical thing, but there's sort of a thematic thing in the set as well that's about glory and telling tales of your glory, and and Boast is part of that. So right, this is that if... If this creature has attacked this turn, you can activate the ability, but only once per turn. It's kind of interesting. Boast is the sort of thing that it's written, so it kind of looks like an ability word. Right. But it's, it's actually a real mechanic. Right. There's too much to template with the fact that like when it when you can use it and the fact that you can only use it once and and that way they can add boast and reduce boast costs, because there's other things that mechanically reference boast. I like it. I like the sort of different things you can do about it. Some of them are, okay, yeah, you can do it whenever later in the turn. Some of them are specifically like, no, I attack, and then while combat's still going on, I'm going to boast about the fact that I attacked you, even though I may die in the process. Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) That really rings true. I don't know. I like it. Because the main mechanics are what? They're boast, foretell, and snow, right? Is there anything else I'm missing? I don't think so. Changeling... Yeah, well, I mean, that's really just a type, though, that gets added, right? It's not... Yeah, the other mechanical things are kind of minor, or, or yeah, they're, they're type-related, like, oh, sagas come back. There's a relative lot of vehicles and equipment oh, in this sure. set. And yeah, yeah. So the, such, such that there are actually cards that reference vehicles and equipment. Sorry, specifically for vehicles, like Eldraine actually had a number of vehicles. They were just all awful. They were all terrible. The ones in this set are actually okay. There's a couple of common ones. There's like, there's the cool cat carriage, and then there's some things that are okay in draft that are like common, and so people are going to play them a bunch of that. They existed in Eldraine. I think they're right there, and there weren't any after Eldraine until this, or maybe there were, and I just missed them, because who cares? No, I think, yeah, right. Nothing significant, definitely. But, But here, they're significant enough in quantity that there are actually other cards that reference vehicles, like and this is one of the nice little combos I like, right? There's the, the 06 Ox who can crew 
the plow. vehicles based on its toughness, and then yeah. there's the plow that has crew six, right? So, uh, <laughs> yes. Well, I was just gonna say, I feel like boast and specifically Fortel. Fortel feels like a pretty nice, fairly fleshed out mechanic, even in one set. Boast feels nice, but it's not something you necessarily need to focus around. It just is like a nice bonus. Snow, I'm kind of surprised. I, I felt like Snow did not get like the biggest support in the world, but I don't really need it to have. Like it still feels fun and functional. It just doesn't seem as like as impactful as Booster Fortel. Yeah, a lot of the Snow things, they really want you to be all in on Snow, or at the very least, I guess. I guess that kind of depends. Let me let me run that back. You have to at least be all in on snow lands, which actually is not that hard, as long as you don't mind missing out on some better lands. The things when you want to pile on more snow permanence, I feel like if you sat down and said, I'm going to make an entire deck of snow cards, you're going to be scraping the, the barrel there. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, I, I don't think there's going to be a, a snow deck in standard, really. Not a competitive one, I should say. I could see... You've got a two-color deck, and you've got a couple of snow cards, mm -hmm. and it's worth it to make all of your mana snow mana. Yeah, because most of the time it doesn't matter, except for the one rare angel that makes the lands come into play tap. There's no reason not to. Yeah, there's actually one anti-snow card in here. But she's not actually an angel. She looks like an angel, oh, but right. she's the god of the worthy. That's right, that's right. She looks very angel. Yeah, she has keyword, kind of cousin to keyword, looks like has flying. <laughs> She's Valkyrie themed, right? All the angels in this set are Valkyrie themed. Mm -hmm. I like that angels is one of my uh, favorite creature types, so I'm happy to see that. No merfolk running around for some reason. There's a lot of them that are angel warriors. There's even, I think, maybe a mm -hmm. couple of angel berserkers because the Valkyrie are in white-black. And all of this is going to play pretty well with Party from last set. Although, not, not that Party's like a real thing, but if you're going to make a cube of this era, that, that's pretty nice. Wizards are an actual supported things. There are clerics, although I don't think there's anything that references clerics as a type, but there are definitely clerics running around. There's one card that says every time you put either an angel or cleric into play, you gain life equal to its toughness. That's the only one I can remember. Okay. But that's that's pretty relevant because the cleric deck is the life gain deck, so that actually could be a key. Not a key component, but casual, I'm just playing in play. <laughs> yeah, and there's a couple more cards that play in with the, like, I get really good when you have, you know, 25 or 27 life. 27 life, yeah. The other thing that I think goes with that feels like it goes a little bit thematically with Boast is the cast a second spell in a turn, because yeah. both of those thematically like and mechanically push you to be a bit more aggressive, like aggressively attack and aggressively, you know, dump your hand out there. Boast gives you something to do on turns you're not doing the two spells, and Fortel plays into the two spells per turn, which I guess is kind of a mechanic that you just didn't keyword it. That feels bigger to me than Snow does, frankly. But Fortel works with that because it usually reduces the cost. So, you know, it helps you jam two spells in a turn a lot of times. The Planeswalkers, we talked about a few of them. So Tybalt is in this. I believe he's destroying the Ten Realms or something like that, or trying to? I think he's just trying to cause ha havoc. Or maybe he is. Well, the last fiction I read featured, like, an army of demons, like, invading the other realms. Mm-hmm. 
that's right they have lands they get another a bunch of land things i think there's a land for each of the realms that's nice plus some like a land for the world tree one was pretty good <laughs> let's see you've got uh tyvar kel so you've got an elf planeswalker and it is an elf tribal card and he's <laughs> he's mono green but he's obviously designed to like fit with the black green elf vibe it's a bit odd, like, I looked at him and I'm like, oh, come on, that is not what elves look like. But, you know, I, I thought about it a little more. It's probably best, you know, not every elf has to be, like, lithe and willowy, nimble, and they can just be ripped, too, I guess. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's good to have a diversity of body types and all different magical races. Well, yeah, yes. I mean, I don't, I don't know how many points you should get for body diversity for having, you know, an elf, elves with a six-pack, but it is, it, it is, it is wrong. diversity of a sort, I, I guess, for elves. Well, I, I just, I feel like the less stereotyping you do, the better. Maybe we can keep working on, you know, they, they do have some, they do have some overweight characters in here, which is nice to see. You know, not the biggest or what. <laughs> yeah, Kea and uh, what is a Frohawk? She looks pretty cool. I guess she always looked pretty cool, but uh, she continues to look cool now. She's got dual axes. Kaya is, like, really awesome. The fact that she apparently fought Vorinclex is really cool. Her card's really cool. Nothing game-breaking or whatever, but it's really nice to see her develop. I like her as a character, so to see more of her is like, yes, okay, yes, good. Yeah, I got... I guess I last saw her in one of the novellas. Not novellas. In one of the of Wiseman's actual novels. The Aftermath War of the Spark novel. Mm-hmm. So, and hey, since I finally read that, now I know least something more about it, what happened with Liliana too, which we talked about way back in the uh, Magic 2021 review episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tyvar is your an elf thing, and Kea is another one who she's creature focused, right? So she doesn't she doesn't create her own protection, but she like helps one of your creatures protect her better, I guess, the first turn you come into play. Although, mm-hmm. I have to admit that so far, every time I've had her played on me, it's to immediately exile something. <laughs> yeah, well, that's kind of her real protection. Yeah, it's sort of it's it's sort of secondary what you do with her later. Like whatever, what's your nasty thing? Yeah, that dies. <laughs> yeah, five mana less conditional removal seems to be the the big thing, uh, and then I get some benefit if it sticks around, or it also just saves me some life because you have to attack it to get rid of it. And then the final planeswalker, because they got four planeswalkers in this one. Nico, who's in the white-blue slot, I guess I have to admit, still seems most noteworthy to me because this is this is not the first non-binary character that they've had in Magic because they've had at least one non-binary legendary before, but this is the first time they've made a deal out of it with a Planeswalker. There's also an X in the casting cost. I, I wish I was more enthused about the art or the mechanics of the card. Sure. I think it's an interesting card. It just doesn't seem like it fits anything right now. It feels like it was more... It's weird because they are supposed to be from... Or they are from... That excellent. God, what's the other one? Theros. Yeah, they're from Theros. Are they from Theros? No, I thought they were from... No, they're not from Theros. They're from... What's the Egyptian plane? No, no. Theros. No, I'm pretty sure they're they're from... Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure... Apparently, Clothis likes to make planeswalkers. Mm Mm-hmm. They got in trouble with Clausus because they were destined to be a great athlete. Right. And they were one of these competitors in the, the Theros athletic competitions. And they 
rejected that because that that's not what they wanted to be great for. They didn't want to fulfill their destiny, as it were. And so they intentionally lost right. a match that they otherwise would have won. And then that pissed off Colossus, and then... I thought they were from Amaket for, for some reason. My brain just must have mistranslated it. Right, because they also had an athletics thing, which was, hey, you get to die to be Nicol Bolas's undead slave. But <laughs> they did have a big competition thing. And so I thought it was really weird that Nico made enchantment things instead of, you know, enchantment clues or whatever. But it actually makes a lot more sense that they're from Theros now. Okay, I, my brain just misinterpreted it. Your ex gets you a bunch of these, what are they, shards? Because Nico has, like, these yeah. mirrors in their art. So the shard tokens, yeah, they're the same thing as the clue tokens, except they're enchantments instead of artifacts. To sack, draw a card. Well, and that divination's totally a Theros theme, too. Yeah, it's just, I don't... The arena avatar, I like how they look in that, but for whatever reason, I don't know if it's just because you've always got this traditionally unflattering looking up at you angle in the art, but I just... I don't know. Do you like the extended art better? I like the extended art better, but it's still not amazing it's the sort of thing where it's like on the one hand i want to be like oh yes non-binary representation on the other hand i want to be like well you don't i'm not gonna like a character just right now and and partially it's just because like i said i get so stuck on the art i just wish i just wish i liked the art better because i sure. that can be so much about like my first impression and liking of a a planes marker but i really I mean, there was a long article introducing Nico, so maybe they actually specifically said in the article that this was, was part of the design, but I've, I've got to presume, even if they didn't say that, I, I've got to think that part of the design there is that there is a a link between the idea of like rejecting the gender binary and rejecting this, this destiny right. theme that the character has in their story. I think my favorite Nico, not maybe the representation of Nico themselves, themselves, but the best art that has Nico in it for me is probably Behold the Multiverse, which is the draw card, which is the divination that has foretell on it. It's scry two, then draw two, which I don't even remember what that because I think that was in a set or two ago they had that. It's just a cool card having all the different shards with all the different planes on them. I actually like like that art better as well than the actual Planeswalker art. But Nico's or at least the one I'm looking at, Nico is kind of dark in the art, so it's kind of hard to see them. Like, you kind of see the top, and you see most of their face, but then, like, chest and everything, it's very, very dark, which is a little bit weird, but, you know, whatever. I mean, the, the reflective stuff, that looks good. I, what's, what other visual yeah. things on cards? There's a lot of cards on this, like, have a sort of Aurora effect yeah. on them, which I bet is going to look really nice foil. Although, mm -hmm. I know foils seem to have fallen out of favor these days. I think the main thing people say about foils is is some sort of Pringles comparison. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's funny because the cold foiling that apparently was made for Flesh and Blood, they did it for Commander Legends. And man, I really like that. It looks really cool. It makes the card look shiny, but it doesn't seem to ever Pringle the card. I was kind of surprised that they did it for Commander Legends and did not do it for this. But, you know, that might just be because Commander Legends was a special set. It might be because they were developing it differently. They might want to use Commander Legends as, like, a test set to see if they want to do it in the main set. Who knows? There's a million different things. But I'm kind of, like, I, I really like the cold foiling, I think, better than, like, the more traditional foiling. My guess would just be that there's a question of, yeah, let's see how people like it before we right. 
switch over or go back and forth or it might actually be more expensive as well which is why they might you know do it kind of more limited in a more limited ish set because it is a little bit more expensive yeah i mean lord knows i mean they've got to be able to do something with the foiling to make it not bend cards it doesn't really seem to get people up in arms when it's like you know here's your foil common but People seem to get pretty ticked about the I paid how much for this secret lair and you yeah. can't give me a card that lays flat. I don't know. I think the only sort of even slightly bigger than a single card thing that we haven't hit on is runes. Sure. There's five runes, one for each color. They either enchant a creature and give it a keyword ability or they enchant an equipment and then make that equipment give that keyword ability to any creature that it's on. They all draw cards when you bring them out. They're like really leaning hard into the like, wow, auras still kind of stink. I'm not really excited about any of them. I like the idea, but the individual cards didn't excite me. The only thing that kind of made me want to do them is that there are two cards that just like tutor them into play, I think. It's like, man, that's a lot better. Uh, Yeah, but it's one in each color, so the person that tutors them, he also does make them cost colorless, and only one instead of two. But that still does not seem like any kind of viable actual thing. No, they kind of just seem like... Yeah. I don't mind them. They're they're fine draft cards. You're going to pick third to last. Like, third to last, two last, somewhere in that slot. Uh, yeah, I, I really don't think you pick them very highly. The one that lets you fly the blue rune, that's probably the best by far, I would think. Um... But other than that, because right, I think white gives you lifelink, black gives you te- death touch, green might give you trample? Nah, I don't know. Who cares? None of it's like super relevant, so it's like, they're fine for draft cards. It's kind of nice, because runes are like a thing in Norse mythology, definitely. It's actually just Scandinavian culture. And enchantments make the most sense, unless you just have an object that is like rune inlaid stuff. Oh, green is plus one, plus one in Trample. That's actually quite a bit better. So we mentioned it mechanically, but another thing, the for, the alternate art Phyrexian language, Vorenklex, Monstrous Raider, that looks really good. I, I have to assume, yeah. I haven't checked, I have to assume that's going to cost a fortune, because like, the Phyrexian swamps are impossible to get. I feel like the Vorenklex, the, like, I'm sure it'll be expensive, but I would guess it would range to like, probably like 30 to 50 because he's also going to be like a pretty desirable card he does a lot of he does a cool unique mechanic he's actually just a very good body he could be a commander these are all things that are going to make him desirable as a card anyhow which means and this is going to be the premium premium one which is the one that usually shoots up in price so yeah i would guess he's gonna be about 50 ish but, you know, that's what that swamp was, but that was just because it was random, you weren't guaranteed box, and you only got one when you did get the pack. And it's a thing you certainly want more than one of. But yeah, it's... Right. Both of those are the sort of thing where I think it's really cool how they look like that, and there is no way on earth that it is cool enough for me to go buy it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just hoping... It seems pretty clear that we're going to be going to Phyrexia next year, because it, it doesn't seem like... Unless one of the Innistrad sets this later this year... It, is a dodge, and, and one of them's actually going to be Phyrexia. It seems, sure, it seems like that's where we're going to be going next year. It's, hopefully they take the time to actually build up going there, and we'll get maybe a Praetor, maybe every set, until we actually do go there. And so hopefully they'll actually have the Phyrexian riding lands in that set, is what I'm hoping, the basics. I don't know. 
what the timing of these things is, but right, yeah, they started dropping in Return to Theros. I don't know why I called it that. It's like just as easy to say Theros Beyond Death. There is where you started dripping Phyrexian stuff, right? There, right from there, you knew that the Phyrexian things were likely to be a buildup, but, but I could also see them spooling it out longer. Because what happened in Theros, because we didn't get the the novels or anything, so they just get, gave a summary, was that when Ashiok was tormenting Elspeth, she was dreaming, and so she pulled the spear out of her dream, which was the spear that was in that set, right? And it was actually a Phyrexian spear, because Elspeth's from Phyrexia, so then Ash, uh, Ashiok saw this, was like, what is this? And then planeswalked there, apparently. Well, yeah, he, he, he planeswalks away because he was like, Phyrexians are cool. Right then, reading that, I'm like, they're bringing the Phyrexians back. There is yeah. no way they were going to drop that little tidbit, that little bit into the story, without then bringing, bringing the Phyrexians back. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been long enough, it feels like, too. So, it's you're going to hit your staples every once in a while. It's been a decent... As long as they don't bring back Phyrexian mana, I'm <laughs> They are one of the uh, original uh, big bads. I don't know, but see, what other individual stuff is noteworthy in here. Like, Goldspan Dragon seems kind of bonkers. Yeah, it and uh, Vorinclex seem to be like the big beaters. And Koma, the Cosmos Serpent, seem to be like the three big beaters that'll be viable. All of those sit there at good old mythic. I do think, like, the the, the world tree, I can see why that's exciting. It's one of those things where I, I don't know if this is an actual... I want normal magic because I still think of standard as normal magic card or just like a I'm going to do some bonkers thing in commander but six or more lands is not a lot. Especially not with the ramp cards that we have. We have so much ramp in standard. We have so much good ramp. Yeah. And you know what? I just like the flavor of oh yes, go and get every single god you have out of your... And they specifically made it non-legendary so you could pack three or four of them, right? So you don't have to worry about just doing one or two so it doesn't end up dead in your hand. Yeah, because you're you're running it as your win condition. I don't know if it's win condition. I don't know if there's any gods that come out and just win you the game. Well, I, I, I mean... I, I, I think it's going to be used a lot more because the three mana artifact from Cycled Out. So this is your new everything taps for whatever mana and basically any deck can use card. I kind of like it until someone makes a really big, stupid deck that I have to face. I'm like, why did this get printed? So, <laughs> You know, see me in mid-match to see what my opinion is. <laughs> Look on the bright side. They can't use it to uh, tutor out Ugin. Correct. Who I know is your favorite, favorite finisher. Favorite mistake? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what do you think about In Search of Greatness? That, that could be a lot of free stuff. I think In Search of Greatness is a really fun card that's just not... It seems like it'll make a deck that will win a decent enough time or do ridiculous enough things that people will play it. I don't think it's consistent enough that it'll actually, you know, watch me eat my words. I don't think it's going to be consistent enough to do anything. This card has more targets the more sets you have in play. So I guess next set's going to be its peak until it gets back around to almost cycling again. Right, there's a lot of enchantment decks, so that's not something you could really ignore, right? It itself is an enchantment. So it seems like you could maybe do something. I don't know if it'll be, like, competitive relevant or not. Because people are casting Ugin on turn four in five, so it's like, or even two, if you've got Tabalt's Trickery. So he even knows, right? It pushes a lot of those other things out, unfortunately. Why don't you uh, talk about Tibalt's Trickery, because I know you want to. Tibalt's Trickery, I want to like the card, but it just 
You know what? Tybalt's trickery, I don't really so much mind. It is the fact that it is in the same environment as Genesis Ultimatum and Ugin that makes me mind it. Because it's a two-mana spell that makes you mill between randomly between one and three. It counters a spell, and then you flip cards until you get a card that is not the same name as the card you countered, and then you can cast that spell for free. Obviously, this is supposed to be red red counter spell that, you know, red's thing when it gets stuff it's not really supposed to do. Like, if it gets removal for enchantments or whatever, really, it's not removal. It's going to be chaotic, you know, in air quotes. Uh, it's going to be chaotic in that you're gonna, just going to get something else. I, I'm going to change it into something different. Neither of us are really going to know or supposed to know what that is, right? That's This is that genre of red spell. But it's just, this is a bad thing to have with both Genesis Ultimatum and zero-cost spells in the environment. I want to like it, but, uh, you know, because if it only hit your opponent's spells, it feels pretty unplayable for the most part. Or interestingly playable, because maybe they have a critical spell, you stop that spell, and maybe, you know, they hit a big threat, but that threat's not going to be fast enough to stop you from winning next turn, right? And it stops the board from getting wiped if you're running it like a mono-red. But that's generally not what mono-red wants to do anyway, so... I don't know. I think it's a card that could have been interesting that unfortunately everybody's going to hate because it has a really stupid deck regardless of win rate and it'll probably get banned. And then people will probably get mad that stuff will get banned. And hopefully it doesn't get banned instead of the other cards I want to get banned, which are Genesis Ultimatum and Ugin, because I feel like they dominate every single game. That's the end of my rant. Thank you. I just looked at it and went like, eh, does Brad really need a counterspell just because it's got randomness in it? The, I think the other card that I... And I, I should just let go of this sort of thing. It was uh, Feed the Serpent. I'm like, so is is white getting to exile creatures just not even a special thing for white anymore? Just black gets to do it all the time. There's a whole bunch of exiling, more so than there used to be, it feels like. There is. I, I don't know. I, I, feel, <laughs> I feel really conflicted about that in both different ways. In one way, because we talked about this kind of last time with the feed the swarm, right? Black finally gets direct enchantment removal, and it was the second time in two sets that it got enchantment removal, although Farika's Libation was a they get to choose, which is usually pretty bad. I'm kind of more for it. I don't like the idea of I play this color, and I just get completely locked out of being able to do some things. But at the same point, not everything is the best fit, and it does dilute the, it can dilute the feeling, you know, and people have an idea of what a magic color is supposed to be, and you are going against that. So, I don't know. But, you know, in black, I like being able to remove stuff. You know, black exiling, I'm not the biggest on. I think there's a little bit too much exile. I think the reason there is so much exile is there's so many threats that killing doesn't do enough to stop them. And I think that's, <laughs> I think that's the bigger problem than exiling. There's a lot of so that's the other thing is I like playing black and I also like playing graveyard strategies. Graveyard strategies are so hard to do other than like just escape because escape, it's just a broken mechanic rather than like a graveyard mechanic. There's just so much stuff that has to deal with the graveyard anymore that everybody's already sideboarding for that. So it makes other actual graveyard strategies basically completely non-viable, which makes me unhappy. I would actually be happier if white kept the exiling. That seems like something white should be exclusively doing. And black just has easier kills. Like, I, I would be much better with that. Also, when I have a weenie deck, it really sucks when not only is you're wiping my board, you're also exiling all my stuff. That really sucks, right? If I'm building a Luris deck, it really stinks that I'm not able to bring all of that stuff back. I, 
Yeah. Luris, that guy, that guy actually functional, not as a companion. Curse you, Luris. <laughs> For me, it just goes back to the, the white card draw thing. I mean, I still remember when we talked about Theros and we got to Calyx, right? Mm-hmm. The new Planeswalker, and I was like, why is this guy green? There's nothing on this guy that's green. This is just a mono-white Planeswalker. What is going on? And you said, oh, no, no, it has to have green on it because it, it has, like, an impulse sort of card draw thing on it. And so, that way, therefore, it can't be white. And I'm like, that can't possibly. That's such a weak, conditional card draw effect. That can't be why the card is green. And you were exactly right. Mauro explicitly said that in one of their, like, design articles about the set. That he's green because it lets you draw a card. That's the green part on that card. Yeah. I, I had the same thing, right? Was it a, is it a Coria? Mm-hmm. They, like, made the guy where, like, he lets both players draw, you and one other player draw a card. And they're like, oh, well, this is us. Oh, another way for us trying to give card draw to white. I'm like, this is not, it's more insulting that you do that than do nothing. And that's just what it is. It's, if it was some other thing, I, I would not really care. I might notice and be like, eh, I don't know what I think about that, but. It's like I feel insulted on White's behalf or something. <laughs> and I don't know what kind of feels like something you could maybe tie to like a big story event. I would really like it if they sat down and recut up the color pie. And it doesn't have to be drastically different. I just think there are things that have drifted between different colors that could be adjusted to make things feel a little bit better, right? Well, maybe you'll get it later this year. Because, right, Planar Chaos, that was part of Time Spiral Block. We're getting <laughs> Time Spiral Remastered. That's true, even though it's not standard or whatever. But I just. Well, yeah. Like, yeah. the Exiling is a way that you could actually keep white stronger. There's a reason to play white. Its removal is the best removal. Why did Soros to Plowshares all of a sudden not become white's thing? Why is that not a white mechanic anymore, right? And they've specifically said that Swords to Plowshares and Path to Exile are too good to be printed in standard, so... Sure, and I'm not saying those cards explicitly exactly, but, right, they got a two-mana card that still is not great. Yeah. There's a lot of levers you could tweak, right? That feels like one that they tweak, And they've even explicitly said that it was a very late tweak because they didn't want to make it too strong. Honestly, I know it upsets people, and I don't want people to be upset, of course, but I'd rather them tweak to be not make a broken card, right? I wish they had printed Oko where he only made your own things bigger. You couldn't use them on other people's stuff. Or it was at least a minus ability, to, you know? Right, yeah. Or they didn't give him as much loyalty or whatever. There's a ton of minor things that just sends a card over the edge. And I think we've had enough of that in the past couple of years. I'd rather them err on the side of, okay, this is not good enough, because then they can make another version where it is bumped up. But you know, people don't want to wait forever for those cards, so it's kind of a if you do, if you don't. Darned if you do, don't. Darned if you don't, if you want to. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, they're going to print Nation in Times Power Remastered, so I think you're allowed to say that, Yeah. Yeah, fair. <laughs> Here's my last three unimportant observations, but you're going to get them anyway, of, of cards I noted for reasons that had nothing to do with power. I like the name Iron Verdict, the white card where it's like got a picture of the guy about to get executed. I like that one. On Sculptor of Winter, it depicts an elf, and it's a pretty solid card. I think it's the 2-2 for 2 that taps to, like, on tap of Snowland or something like that. But her ears have the braiding in the ear. It looks really... The Celtic Knot. Yeah, it looks 
kind of odd and cool and creepy, and I don't know what, but I like that. I thought that was interesting. I said Celtic not, but it's really not Celtic. That is a pattern you find in a lot of Nordic art. Wrong culture. And the final one is, uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing it right, it's Morit of the Frost, who, like a lot of the Changeling stuff in this, like copies something when the card comes into play, but I found it, it was hilarious. If you copy a creature, it's like, this card becomes a copy of that creature, except <laughs> it's legendary and snow and this and that. There's like four things that are different about the copy. I mean, I, right. I get it. It makes sense. There's nothing wrong with it. It just tickled me pink for whatever reason to be like, it's a copy of this card, except for these 17 different things in ways in which it's not a copy of the card. Please proceed, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's it. So I, I like Kaldheim. I like the theme. I think I'm kind of with you in that the pitch of it as a Viking set and the pitch of it as the most metal magic set, for me, is less interesting than what the set actually is. Yeah. I felt like everybody else was super excited for it. And I this is a pretty exciting year of magic. I think there's a lot of stuff people have been wanting or maybe didn't know that they wanted or whatever that, that are, that's coming this year. And this was the set I was actually the least hyped for. I, I still don't know that it will be the set I like the most, but I liked it a lot more than I thought I was going to. So that's a really good sign. I think from the art to the themes to everything, this, this set mostly hits. It's interesting cards to play, new effects, all that type of stuff. I liked it better than I thought to. I'm, I'm not expecting it to be the set I like the most because I, I mean, there's a vampire set. Right, exactly. And a werewolf set and D&D. I have overly high hopes, and I'll probably end up disappointed by the uh, Magic Academy set. Yeah, same. <laughs> this one, I definitely like it more than I did. Even Honestly, even if you had told me Norse mythology, I might have been like, kind of, eh, we'll see, because you know who I get bored of pretty quick when I read the comics? Yeah, Thor. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I actually do like Norse mythology. I think it's one of those things that it really hasn't happened since Theros, for the most part, because Amenket didn't, like, it leaned on e Egyptian-style art in some ideas, but didn't really remake a lot of their mythos, I, I feel like. It, it was really, you know, it was very involved with Bolas and whatnot, so I think that took a lot of... This is not really involved with anything, and it really, really got a chance to, like they did in the original Theros, say, here, here's our magic interpretation of this culture, and I think it's really neat how it replicates certain things and whatnot. I think when they went into Amonkhet, one of the things they thought was they had to choose between, like, is this live Egypt or dead Egypt? Right. And the other thing is that it turns out there are some very iconic things that people think of as Egyptian, but that the popular knowledge of Egyptian stuff is incredibly shallow. Yeah, absolutely. People just don't know anything about Egyptian mythology. You like you know about like King Tut and pyramids yes. and the Sphinx and then Correct. Yeah, you're hundred percent they probably matched what general knowledge was. When honestly something like the fact that there's like an ongoing Marvel series Greek that has Norse mythology stuff in it probably helped a little bit. There's several Viking shows and if you don't know it, it's kind of a cool bridge into oh hey, what's this worm? And someone's like, Oh, did you know this is Jormangandar or whatever? There's a bunch of different bridges into the actual real mythology, which is kind of neat. Okay, you got my last few cards, and that was sort of my closing out. Did you have anything else to throw in that we blew past? I've realized over the last year that I'm actually a black player, which is not something that I would have told you. Like I'm a, the color black in Magic player. 
And man, I like the black cards in the set. They're all really cool. Skull Raid is awesome. It's the discard too, but if they don't have cards, you get to draw cards. That seems, <laughs> and you can foretell it. That seems real good, but really, and also Valkyrie, the God of Lies is really cool. Varagoth, who's the demon rogue that can boast to go vampiric tutor you a card, is really cool. Yeah. But I think the coolest out of all of them is Turgrid, God of Fright for me. I just really like that it's either the god or the lantern, and the lantern is constantly making you lose stuff. I don't know. I think it's just the art is really cool. The card is really cool. And I like I like this set quite a bit. So that's it. That's my thoughts. Okay. We've been talking about Kaldheim, the latest relief for Magic the Gathering. It's a game you may have heard of it. Small thing. We're happy to like do our best to, you know, help promote this new and undiscovered product out to you, our valued listeners. Uh, <laughs> you've been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can subscribe to the podcast there or iTunes or the Apple Podcast app or whatever podcatching service you use. If you do get us through a podcatching service, but especially if it's one of those Apple podcatching services, we would greatly appreciate if you would leave us a rating or review, it helps other people discover the show. You can also find us on the usual social media. We're at Strange Assembly on Twitter, Facebook.com slash Strange Assembly, and at Strange Assembly on Instagram if you want to see the like one picture a month that I put up. You can also reach me directly. I'm Chris at StrangeAssembly.com. I always like to hear from our listeners and readers. And there is more written content on the website in addition to these podcasts. But until then, for Mike Cook, I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming. <laughs>